welcome to Leaked Lunch, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. I'm Isabella Kaminska and in this edition I am joined for brunch at the Ned in the heart of the city of London by leading economist and author Nouriel Roubini, now Professor Emeritus of the Stern School of Business at New York University. Rubini famously made a name for himself by predicting much of the economic crisis of 2008. The foresight earned him the moniker Dr. Doom, but he told me he would prefer to be known as Dr. Realist these days. During brunch, we discussed his new book, Megathreats, the 10 dangerous trends that imperil our future and how to survive them. The narrative sticks firmly to the Doom brand. Rubini is not convinced, for example, that aggressive interest rate hikes will curb inflation, nor is he convinced that the current measures being taken to combat climate change will be costless. On the horizon, all he can see are growth constraints at a time when the world needs mega growth in order to escape potential economic collapse. It is a nod, if not a sequel in that sense, to the Malthusian thinking that brought us the Club of Rome's limits to growth thesis in 1972. Despite the gloom, Rubini said he has no plans to invest in any bunkers, mainly because who really wants to survive the apocalypse? And we did, of course, also discuss Rubini's views on the current crypto collapse, given his long-standing crypto-critical position. So for our listeners, I'm joined today for a leaked brunch with none other than Dr. Doom himself. I don't know, do you like that moniker? Uh, usually I say that I'm a doctor realist, not Dr. Doom, but I guess that uh, Dr. Realist is not as catchy as Dr. Doom, so people prefer to call me Dr. Doom. That but, is a you know, but I'm neither a pessimist or an optimist. I try to figure out how the world is with the upsides and the downsides at the same time. So that is uh, none other than Nouriel Rubini, who, who you can hear there. And we've, he's joining me for brunch. This is a leaked brunch in... Um, we're at the Ned, which is the. It used to be. A, I think it used to be a bank, right? It used, it's got a massive vault. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the basement of this vault, so I guess it was to be a, a bank. Absolutely, looks like a bank. It feels like a very appropriate venue. So we're we're having a brunch. So what? Noriel's having a coffee, and I will probably have a coffee as well. Maybe actually, I will have a tea. Are you having anything to eat? Uh, for now, the coffee will be good. Okay, so. I will have some tea when the lady comes. So. Uh, Maybe we can order. Can we order? Could I just get a uh, mint tea, please? All oh, right, sorry, thank you. One person. So, Nouriel, I've got your book, Mega Threats. Um, you get to read it all or just I, skim it? Because of the Royal Mail, it only arrived a couple of days ago, but I have done my best to read as much as possible. Also, I've read all your articles that you've been doing and the big one that you sent me. So, I think I'm fairly on top of what you're saying, but um, it's, it is. I mean, to me, it's uh, it's biblical. <laughs> I see you as a sort of like I see you like a Noah to Kathy uh, Wood's Ark in some ways. I will explain that in a in a yeah. second because obviously the book is all about mega threats and what um, I mean, not so much blind spots because I think most of the most of these threats are very understood. No. Yeah. So, what made you to start off? Let's just ask. What made you think now is the time to write this book? Uh, well, now is the time because um, I started to reflect on the bigger picture issues uh, during COVID. And, you know, I'm an economist and usually economists believe in the concept of uh, comparative advantage. Stick to what you know best and don't say anything else. 
but I figured out that in addition to economic, monetary, and financial risks, and some of them are conventional, but some of them are new. Yeah. Like right now, we have a return of inflation, we have the return of stagflation, we have a risk of very severe debt crisis like we've not seen in the last few decades. But we live also in a world in which uh, there is a geopolitical depression as China, Russia, Iran, North Korea challenge the order the US and the West created after World War II. Uh, there are, of course, massive environmental risks that are becoming increasingly damaging. We just had COVID-19 and the risk that will be repeated and more severe pandemics that are highly costly is a rising threat. Uh, we have AI, machine learning, robotic automation that should increase the economic pie, but it leads to permanent technological unemployment and to an increase in income and wealth inequality. We're now a backlash against uh, uh, trade, globalization, a return to trade wars and deglobalization and currency wars. And we have now also a backlash against liberal democracy as all over the world uh, you see pretty extreme uh, populist parties of extreme right and left uh, coming to power and challenging again our own institution that are, used to be democratic of law and order. Uh, and in some sense, these risks are known, absolutely. But one of the, I would to say, value added of the book is connecting the dots. Uh, because um, the way I see this is a 10 by 10 matrix in which each one of these uh, threats affects the other and is affected back. And connecting the dots and seeing it in a holistic way is part of what I do in the book. I mean, this is all very well and true. That is a loud window. Um, <laughs> well, I, um, I also feel, though, having read the book, because um, obviously the book ends on, on you trying to be optimistic and seeing um, a way out, yeah. right? And you double down on the idea of growth at any... Essentially, you're, you're, if, I, if I correctly surmise, our way out of these mega threats is for generating kind of like hyper growth at some point because we can't really do it without it yeah. but it has to be growth that's conditional to all these other factors like sustainability etc but I found your book very realistic about the green issues which is quite rare um, these days you, you 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 acknowledge unlike a lot of people in the market I think that the, the current trajectory doesn't necessarily spring us out of here because we're not there with the technology just yet has that been a hard message to sell to people? Because it's quite controversial, I would say. Uh, yeah, it's a bit controversial because today everybody talks about uh, dealing with climate change, uh, reaching, reaching net zero. Mm -hmm. Every bank, every corporation has a, a plan, every country and so on. But unfortunately, as I was studying this phenomenon, I saw that there was a huge amount of greenwashing, green wishing, green fig leaves. A lot of this ESG investment, frankly, is all talk. They are relabeling assets that were toxic and calling them being or socially or otherwise, uh, uh, how to say, good. And um, and unfortunately, both uh, Glasgow and now Sharm el-Sheikh were a failure. Even if you were to implement those plans and they're not going to be implemented, we're on the way to go well above two centigrades about the industrial level, probably the trajectory is at least 2.4, 2.5, most likely closer to 3. And, um, and I was looking at the potential solutions, uh, mitigation that means going to net zero implies with current 
<clears throat> technologies, uh, negative economic growth, something that is not acceptable anywhere. Adaptation that means let the temperature to go to plus two, plus three, and then to limit the damage and the cost is going to be uh, very, very expensive. The damage will be so high that then the cost of fixing it is going to be huge. And those uh, geoengineering solutions like throwing dust in the atmosphere, they look like freak science right now with lots of other side effects. So, unfortunately, I think there is a separation between uh, normative statements about how the world should be and desirable to be and how is it likely to be. And I think in lots of the discussion about climate change, people are talking about how they want the world to be, but they don't realize there are major constraints uh, that lead us not to do the right thing. And identify in the book several of them. Uh, for example, domestically, take the United States, half of the country, Republicans don't believe in climate change or don't believe that it is human-induced. So when Republicans are in power, the policies are to do nothing about climate change. <clears throat> Secondly, there is an intergenerational conflict between young and old. I'm 64, I'm gonna at some point die. If you're a younger person, your life expectancy is probably 100, you're gonna live for another, you know, three quarters of a century. And unfortunately, the young don't vote, the elderly vote, and the cost uh, of dealing with climate change are in the short run, and the benefits are only in the long run. So we're not doing enough. Internationally, there are three sets of problems. One is the free rider problem, the tragedy of the commons, typical game theoretical concept. If a country does all the effort to cut their emission to zero, but they're the only one, they don't get any benefits because the emissions are global. Yeah. And convincing 200 countries to do it is mission impossible. So there is this free rider. Two, the conflict between advanced economies and emerging markets. Uh, we are telling China, India and others, cut your emission to zero in the next 10, 20 years. They say, you created the emission for the last 200 years with your industrial revolutions. 90% of all the stock of historic emission come from the West. It's true that the flow of new emission comes a lot from China, India and others. But uh, you are now rich and you're telling us we're poor or middle income to stop growing because you created the mess. Sorry, we're not going to do it unless you give us trillions of dollars of transfers and subsidies. Something is not going to happen. And then finally, there's also a geopolitical constraint in a world in which uh, there is superpower rivalry between US and China on health, on global security, on trade, on financial stability. It's very hard to reach agreements on issues regarding the global climate change. So these are all constraints that imply that we're not doing the right thing. Plus, you know, my former colleague at Yale, Bill Nordas, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on the environment, says that in order to achieve the Paris target, the average carbon tax in the world should be about $200 per ton. Today, the average is $2 per ton. Less than that in US, maybe five or six in Europe. But there's no government's gonna increase by a factor of 100, from two to 200, their carbon taxes or fuel taxes. The opposite is happening, as now the price of oil, energy, gasoline, petrol, heating gas, you name it, is rising. Every country in the world is cutting, actually, fuel taxes rather than increasing them. And, uh, and therefore, we're not gonna achieve that 2% target. I mean, there's so much, so many strands we can do, go down because I feel like the whole book really is about the balance. It's, it's about fine balance, like to get out of this malaise 
there are all these different you know risks it's not just one risk it's like 10 yeah, risks yeah. you know that are connected with each other but so what people call also poly crisis now it's a right. new buzzword that adam tools and others are using but if you move against one too much you then trigger another one and so you have this need to balance between like so I, i mean this is what i also found very interesting about the book is that you know there is a it is a book that is critical about sort of deglobalization in some ways because obviously globalization was was um, a pathway to growth but it did come with certain costs um, and it's clear that just returning on that globalization pathway isn't going to be the answer right so how does that in what camp does that put you relative to the sort of you know peter teals of this world who have i think you know for a long time been um, worried about mega threats themselves i mean he's part of the camp of uh, billionaires who's like who's been buying uh, underground bunkers <laughs> do you have a underground bunker yet uh, i don't have any <laughs> underground bunker actually during covid i spent all my time in new york people escaped to miami to the hamptons upstate catskills whatever i stayed in new york pretty much 99% of the time so, so figure out you have to live with the world that you have exactly. you have to escape it well right so no, those banks are not going to be sufficient by the way because people say that if there is going to be either a nuclear winter or a, a environmental disaster you should go to somewhere in New Zealand or Tasmania there's a small problem that you know there'll be a billion people in Asia going to have to move where those damages doesn't occur and uh, New Zealand or Tasmania don't have the the weapons of the army to prevent people from reaching their shores so i think that uh, the idea that some country are safe uh, exactly. it doesn't consider the fact that you know people are going to want to go where yeah so china's going to take over siberia most likely because you know half of china is going to be too hot or too flooded to live and right. there are about 17 million russians in siberia and a population of 160 while china's at 1.4 billion so i think that siberia will be taken over by the chinese in the next few decades realistically So I guess what I want to ask is would we be here anyway regardless of whether we had had Brexit and Trump you know where these is this an inevitable pathway that we've ended up post GFC or you know is it our Trump and Brexit reactions to underlying threats or is it you know they a causation issue like that's what I, I really want to uh, it's both ways I mean I see this backlash against uh, liberal democracy that is coming from the fact that there is uh, economic malaise there rising income and wealth inequality uh, middle lower class people feeling like uh, economic and financial elites control essentially the system and therefore they're against it and that's why you have these new populist parties or within established parties you have now more extremist kind of uh, uh, parts coming coming to power and we see this backlash i mean you have uh, uh, you have putin in russia you have erdogan uh, in turkey you have orban uh, in hungary you have kaczynski in poland you have this neo fascist uh, meloni in power in italy in Sweden, uh, neo-Nazi party, Swedish Democrats are going to be part of the coalition. You had uh, Brexit, you had the Trump phenomenon in January 6. This is on the right. On the left, you know, say in Latin America, used to be the case you had a couple of countries where populists of the left, Argentina and Venezuela. But look at the last few years, you know, Mexico under AMLO, Peru, Chile, Colombia, 
in Brazil was the option between an authoritarian populist of the right, Bolsonaro, and a populist of the left. Luckily, they went for Lula. That is not as bad, at least, in terms of threats to democracy. And then you have the biggest uh, of all is, is China, Xi Jinping. I don't know whether it's an authoritarian of the right or the left. Um, it doesn't matter, but uh, it's not just the president, it's not just the king, it's now the emperor of China. And, and by deciding everything on his own, he's making uh, big, uh, big mistakes. So we, we are going in a world in which I would say, on one side, economic malaise and inequality is the reason why these populists are becoming more popular. But then we know that economic populism leads to usually to economic disaster. You know, in Latin America, every time you had some populist of one side or the other, eventually end up with inflation, hyperinflation, debt crisis, financial and economic meltdown. So I don't think that populism is the solution. But is the trend uh, given that there is a backlash against... Uh, I guess, because you say right at the beginning, and this is, a, this is one of the paradoxes, I think, of the current era that I'm really trying to understand and unpack. Because um, you, you, you kind of uh, imply that either way, we're going to have to subordinate individual freedoms, because we're either going to have to collectivize to the point to tackle these big threats in a way where, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's uh, climate change or whatever, the era of, like, laissez-faire is, is under threat whether it's from authoritarian governments or from the solutions to some of these problems. So is there any pathway where you can see liberal democracy like withstanding these uh, threats and forces? Well, in the book, um, I have 10 chapters on each one of these mega threats. For each one of them, I talk about potential solutions, but I point out that in each case, uh, there are significant costs. The costs are in the short run and the benefits are always in the long term. And that's one constraint of doing the right thing. It doesn't matter whether you are democratic or authoritarian. The political economy of reform and change is that uh, you try to kick the can down the road. You put your head in the sand like an ostrich. As I say, you, you push the snooze button over and over again. But then you create even bigger problems down the line. And that's the political economy of, of doing stuff that is painful in the short run and gets benefit in the long run. We discount uh, you know, the future and therefore we don't do the right thing. And then I have two chapters. One, 11, is about the dystopian future in which everything goes wrong and each one of these threats feeds on each other. And it's not just the end of our economy, it's also the end of the planet, and even the end of humanity under some scenarios. And then there is a more utopian or less dystopian scenario where step by step, we're trying to resolve these problems and try to get to a better future. But then in the epilogue, I say that uh, I would love the utopian outcome to be the one that is, of course, desirable uh, from a positive as opposed to a normative stance. The dystopian scenario for now to me looks more likely because we're in a slow motion train wreck. But you still so haven't bought a bank bunker. So there's a small part of optimism in you. Listen, you know, <laughs> I, I, I live in New York. If there was a nuclear exchange, uh, the first nuke goes to Washington and New York and the other to Moscow and Beijing. Uh, New York could be, was the ground zero of COVID-19 because of density. There's another major pandemic, it's gonna be the same. Uh, there was a ma massive hurricane, Sandy, that destroyed downtown New York. There could be bigger ones coming. Uh, if there's gonna be social unrest, uh, New York could be the case. If there's gonna be financial meltdown, it's gonna start with Wall Street. 
But you know, we're going to be in a world in which there is a nuclear winter. You want to live in an island and survive. I might as well just perish like everybody else. So I think that, you know, frankly, living in that world is not worth living. So I'm not saying I'm going to escape from it. It's like escaping from reality. If you no, stay there, the risk you can York, do. Like, yeah, no. I mean, no, if you don't escape, then you have to face reality and do something about it. Well, everybody escaped to Miami, to the Hamptons, upstates, or wherever, but there was escape. Right, it's not reality. <laughs> and Miami is going to be flooded as much as New York because of sea ice levels, and actually, hurricanes are going to destroy most of Florida in finite time. So, it's really, it really doesn't even make sense to go to Florida. This is obviously a hugely pessimistic um, outlook, and it's not that I realistic. Disagree. Realistic, <laughs> I, would say. I don't know what's pessimistic about it. Um, I don't necessarily disagree that we yeah. uh, face all these challenges, but yeah. um, but I guess people are going to try and survive. They're not going to just like sit there and um, you know take it. So the question is, they try to survive, but we also have uh, very destructive attitudes mm. uh, to lots of problems, both domestically and internationally. I mean, there's a lot of talk about dealing with these issues, but not much is being done. It's frankly. a collective action so. problem, right? So, given the collective action problem, yeah. it seems to me this is one of the um, great problems. Is that? And, and, and I will reference Peter Till because I do think this is. I I wouldn't usually put you two in the same camp, but reading your book. It, it sort of well, Peter is a libertarian conservative kind of guy <laughs> exactly. who lives only in free markets and very little government. So I think ideologically we're very different, but, even if he worries about stuff about the future. So, but I guess what, what but he believes the solutions are not collective solutions, frankly. Well, one of the recent interviews he did, he was talking about how he was likening it to um, both going too much uh, in the kind of reactionary, you know mitigation side of things will take us down an authoritarian you know incredibly um, top-down system um, which he fears and and not doing anything leads us to what you're talking about there total collapse so he's talking yeah. about like we're a sort of position when where we're navigating a boat through Skiller and Charybdis right and any any bad footing can take us down both 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 options are not good right but he's I guess he would justify what he's doing as, as trying to steer us very, you know, delicately through the two, two contravening forces. Um, but there is at least some sort of outlook where we get through that challenge. Do you think, therefore, there is a similar... I mean, is that a fair analysis, do you think? I mean, because it sounds fairly... I don't see that much mm. out of line with what you're both saying. Well, on one side, um, I believe that... Uh, Many of these mega threats uh, have a collective component that have to be addressed at the national and international level. So any kind of a laissez-faire or libertarian or approach of, you know, every individual maximizes their own uh, utility and profit and the system is fine, is wrong, because there are these uh, externalities of our private behaviors that have significant damaging effect for the, for the collective and the aggregate. Um, on the other side, I see that uh, while the solution has to be at the national and international level, I see too many divisions politically that prevent us from doing the right thing uh, domestically. And internationally, because now we have great power competition, it's very hard to provide this uh, global public good. You know? In international relations, uh, there is this concept of uh, hegemonic stability that mm -hmm. says that usually we need an hegemon 
that internalizes all these externalities and is willing to provide uh, global public goods. You know, in the 19th century was the British Empire, free trade, openness, uh, even security with the <clears throat> British Navy and you name it. In the 20th century was the Pax uh, <clears throat> Americana, rather the Pax Britannica, with the US becoming the leading power and pushing towards uh, trade liberalization, open markets, providing security with NATO in Europe and in Asia through its own allies and so on. Uh, but now, you know, there is a rise of China. There are other great powers like Europe, potentially India rising. So we are in competition between global powers and no one is providing this global public good. Certainly China has been free riding on the system in many different dimensions. So achieving the solution that imply global governance, because many of these problems are global, security, free trade, climate change, uh, pandemics and so on, becomes um, you know, mission impossible. So we need a, a new global hegemon. Uh, and if the new global hegemon is going to be China, they have an economic system, state capitalism, I don't think is ideal. They have a political system, extremely authoritarian, becoming more authoritarian is not ideal. And uh, they're flexing their geopolitical power throughout Asia and globally in a way that might be actually dangerous. So we don't think that we want uh, China to be the global hegemon, right? And the U.S. is becoming less of a hegemon because the rise of other powers. Uh, U.S. is also fiscally stretched. The U.S. is divided domestically. So the ability of the U.S. and the willingness and also the financial uh, constraints imply that U.S. has a hard time to be that global hegemony as well. Right? Whoever, That's the world we live in. But whoever ends up being the global hegemon, if, we, if one does emerge, um, they will have to tackle these problems, which means they will have to be like, you know, Trust recently famously said, prepared to be unpopular. Which means democracy, I, I don't see a pathway where democracy can survive because if you have to take these unpopular decisions for the sake of the collective, you're not going to last in office very long. Well, you know, was it Winston Churchill who said that the democracy is the worst political system apart from the alternative? We've seen when there is uh, authoritarian regimes. First of all, many authoritarian regimes are kleptocratic. They steal money uh, and they give it to the elites. There are those one quote are technocratic, and the latest example was uh, China. But China had a fine balance between autocracy and meritocratic system where within the party there was a little bit of a debate, there were different factions with different views, but now it's become so authoritarian that there is only one person who is uh, Xi Jinping, pretty much decides everything. He even got rid of his four main economic advisors that were pushing the direction of uh, opening up the economy as opposed to going towards state capitalism. You know, Yue was his main advisor, Yi Gang at the central bank, uh, Li Keqiang, the prime minister and the head of the security regulatory. These were the economic reformers. Now they're all gone and you have a bunch of apparatniks that are in charge of the economy. And when you have one person in power, even a benevolent technocrat, sooner or later, he or she makes mistakes. So uh, one thing is to have collective action and making collective decisions, but they have to be based on some degree of consensus and therefore autocracy doesn't work. We know all the pitfalls of democracy that reaching consensus is hard. We kick the can down the road. 
in terms of addressing problem, but you know, autocracies do the same, right? Many autocracies are plutocracies or kleptocratic, and those who are pseudo-technocratic sometimes become even more autocratic and then they make huge mistakes. And even China doesn't want to address many of these problems. So So how do you, with all these challenges that, you know, as far as I can I can see, you've either got like autocracy in, in one flavor here or in another, or in a more collectivized global consensus way but where people are then being suppressed their right to choose populists or whatever um, who will unwind all those uh, green policies etc um, how I mean to what degree is the real answer about education and getting people to freely submit to the sort of collective action that serves all our collective interests um. And is that, is that, or is it too late for that? No, there, there is not uh, an easy solution. As I said, usually democratic political system, however, slowly they tend to go in the direction of dealing with the issues and resolving them. Of course, the political economy is that uh, it's hard to do reforms unless there is a crisis, even in a democracy. I don't think that the autocratic solution is the right one. Eventually leads to economic and financial and other disaster leaving aside the repression of individual rights and, and all the rest. But let's backtrack uh, to what you were saying about uh, green, because I think this yeah. is what's great about your book. You acknowledge that on the current trajectory, these green policies are going to hit growth and yeah. that is going to have an impact on, on the bottom line of most people. Right? Yeah. So they're not going to be very happy with mm. that scenario and they will, there will be a reaction to it. Uh, there'll be a reaction with it, and that's why we're not implementing the right policies. You could argue that over time, you know, if young generations are going to live uh, for another several decades, uh, they care about a world in which everything is destroyed by climate change. And if they get engaged uh, socially and politically and otherwise, eventually they're going to vote for policies that imply costs in the short run, but then lead them to survive in the long term. Uh, that might be the hope that you have. And certainly young people are more engaged on the issue of environment than, than other generations. So that's maybe part part of the hope. Does it, I mean, <laughs> it's a thought just occurred to me, yeah. but is it, you know, some people accuse, you know, the Greta movement of being a bit of a cult, right? But maybe, do we need cults to get out of this? Do we need some sort of, you know, large uh, groups? I, 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 don't, I, I don't believe in cults. I think cults usually tend to be very fanatic, very rational, and so on. You need people who are passionate and engaged, and you need political movements, so they're going to be new ones. They're going to think about uh, we are on a slow motion train wreck. Uh, we could have global war among global powers. We could have pandemics like we've never seen before. We could have climate change destroying things. We could have AI are the things destroying most jobs. We need to do something about it. Uh, and maybe there'll be new political movements that are gonna push us in a different direction. I think it's unlikely, but uh, that's, that's maybe the hope. Since we're here in uh, London yeah. by the Bank of England, and I guess it didn't make it into your book because it was already published, um, I'd love your, your thoughts on the recent uh, British debacle and uh, the anti-growth um, movement you know, supposedly the anti-growth movement versus the uh, trust uh, 
um, outlook that was hoping to bet it all on. Um, oh, I'm not. I'm not even sure anymore. She was trying to bet it on all. But what what are your thoughts about that episode, and what is the outlook for Britain especially? I mean, did it surprise you what happened with uh, with the um, with the pound and with the, the gilt market? How closely were you watching it? Uh, yes, I was closely watching it. I would say, first of all, the UK made a huge mistake by voting for Brexit. It was a self-inflicted uh, wound, reduced potential growth, uh, restricted trade, movement of labor, goods, services in a way that increases cost of production. Um, so, of course, there is stagflation all over the world because there are negative supply shock, but there is an additional one, this Brexit decision. So that's really damaging for the UK economy. Then, you know, politically has been unstable. You had uh, three prime ministers in the last six months, uh, four chancellors, you know, five home secretaries. So it's total uh, chaos. Uh, we're already in stagflation in the UK. Inflation is double digit and rising. Even the Bank of England is expecting five consecutive quarters of negative uh, economic growth. So the stagflation and right now because of the attempt to have looser fiscal policy there was a shock to the market right you know UK started to be priced like a emerging market with the pound falling and interest rates rising sharply luckily that market discipline has led then to a change in government and the current government may be slightly more fiscally conservative but the problem is that you know there is this uh, view that uh, UK could become, unquote, like Singapore. Low regulation, low taxes, low spending. First is the wrong comparison, because actually Singapore is almost like a socialist country. You know, half of the corporates are state-owned enterprises, benevolent, but state-owned. Huge amount of government spending, huge amount of taxes through forced savings. So you get uh, healthcare, education, housing, but forced savings are a form of taxation and this highly regulated economy. I mean, the, the comparison should have been with Hong Kong, but saying that UK should become like Hong Kong is not very politically correct now that China has swallowed Hong Kong. But Hong Kong was a model of low regulation, low taxes, low government spending. But the idea that the, the UK could become another Hong Kong is just nonsense. If you want to have access to the European market, even in a free trade area, let alone in a custom union, you have to accept all, pretty much all EU regulations on pretty much everything. Two, you know, there is pressure to spend more even in the United Kingdom. Everybody wants the healthcare, the national health service. Everybody wants pension. Everybody wants to spend more money for those who are disaffected. So if you're going to spend more, you have to have also higher taxes. That's why the latest decision of the new government are to increase taxes by 2% of GDP, right? Not to cut taxes and so on. So, you know, UK has to remain like every other major economy in the world, uh, high taxes, high spending, high regulation. So the alternative is actually is not feasible. So they can talk as much as they want about low taxes, low spending, low regulation. It's just talk, it's just nonsense talk. It's not going to happen. There's so, no chance. So do you think that austerity is the right answer for the UK? Well, given what happened uh, with the pressures on the currency and on interest rates, there's a risk of a, of a fiscal crisis, uh, you have to decide what to do. And luckily, I would say at least uh, they've decided that while they're going to control somehow spending, they will also increase revenues. 
as opposed to the dogma of let's cut taxes and cut spending even more. That was just not feasible. Uh, so I would rather have a system like now where there is a significant increase in taxes for those who can afford it. And then you maintain a social safety net as opposed to one in which you try to dismantle it and you have lower taxes. So. So obviously the tax rise, the tax cut was one of the controversial, um, you know, factors in the trust uh, yeah. growth plan. Um, but I, to be honest, like, has there been a bit of a, you know, is there a bit of a blind spot in that? Obviously, we're going to come to it. I hope in a in a second, the mother of all debt crisis. But the UK's, you know, the most leveraged element in the UK to some degree is the middle class because they've got the biggest mortgages, they've got the biggest houses. Um, they were the ones that were going to benefit a little bit, not a lot, but you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, I think the tax cut was about two billion. So it was a, it was a bit of chicken chain, a ch chicken feed to a very like increasingly precarious demographic because they're not. It wasn't really to the billionaires, right? It wasn't. They don't get paid through ta uh, income tax. They, they don't. They're not pay YE. They don't get. They all get paid through dividend tax. You know. And capital gains, the big billionaires, nobody yep, gets yep. a salary. So we're talking about the sort of middle class Deloitte workers, people who work in the city on, you know, the PRs, the uh, uh, tech industry. Not so much actually, the tech industry probably not. But it's the sort of everyday commuter types who are who are highly extended, um, and obviously going to be the most um, susceptible to. Um, to bankruptcy in the event of rising interest rates because of their massive mortgages. So was it not a little bit justifiable what she was trying to do? Well, the way I understand that uh, part of the tax cut was a relief for the middle class, part of it was going to the corporate sector and the higher wealth uh, individual or institution. So uh, if it was just targeted for the middle class, it might have been much uh, smaller than it was. Two, on the spending side, uh, I think that the reaction of the UK, but also of other advanced economies, has been the wrong one. So if you have a rise in energy prices, if you want to have the transition to a green economy, you should let uh, the market price of uh, fossil fuel to be as high as you can. And then you do a mean test transfer of income, either to the poor and or to the middle class that suffers because of the shock to their energy bills. That's the optimal solution. While pretty much everywhere, including the UK, you try to cap uh, the increase in uh, uh, energy prices by having some uh, price caps or subsidy of various sorts. And then you transfer money across the board to everybody. So that was a usually expensive and totally inefficient. So it's the combination of what they did on the spending side and the revenue. They did not make any economic sense. And then the market reacted very negatively. So do you think the cap is uh, is going to fail in the, in the long run or what's your view on Because obviously the cap is not just in the UK, it's also being uh, deployed in, in Europe. Well, there are two types of things. One is the recent decision of the Europeans and the US to try to cap uh, the exports of oil of Russia to not more than $60 per barrel. Another thing is what everybody is doing is that they are reacting essentially to the rise in energy prices by fiscalizing it, by telling people, no, you're not gonna pay more than X for your energy, but there is a huge fiscal cost. You have a shock to real income through terms of trade of about 3% of GDP, and we're fiscalizing probably two thirds of it. 
if it was a temporary shock, we'll be right, but if it was a permanent shock, we have to accept you're going to be poorer, you have to spend less. And we're keeping artificially low energy prices in a way that maintains the demand for fossil fuels higher. When you want to reduce that demand, you need to switch to renewable. And we're offering, and across the board, also transfer payments to everybody, regardless of your income and wealth, that's usually expensive. So the design of how you react to that energy shock is totally wrong in the UK, in Germany, in Italy, and everywhere in Europe. I would definitely agree. And I'm curious um, why you think the, um, the governments, like, do, do they not have advisors? Like, like <laughs> it seems such an obvious economic mistake. Well, how, why are they not listening to the economic common sense here? Um, for many reasons. Maybe they don't listen to the economists. Two, it's more popular or populist to try to help everybody, every household, every business, every corporation. Uh, three, you know, to design the optimal policy, you need to know data exactly about who needs what. And so it's easier to do stuff uh, across the board. Four, you can artificially reduce the official inflation rates by reducing energy prices. So you get that benefit in the short term of saying inflation is lower. But actually, since you are transferring money to the private sector that is being spent, then you are feeding the overheating of the economy. So in the short term, you are repressing inflation by creating actually stimulus on the fiscal side. It's going to be more inflationary over time. So I think it's just not thinking correctly about uh, what you do. And by the way, that fiscal stimulus that pushes demand higher makes the, the, the challenge that the BOE or the central bank face worse. So if you have fiscal stimulus that causes more inflation, then central bank have to react to it by tightening even more. So you're a bit of a fight between what fiscal policy is doing and monetary policy is doing. So, so it's a bit of a mess. It does seem like two clashing forces moving against each other. Do you think, therefore, the independence of central banks is at risk? Um, yeah, I mean, central banks were never really independent. People say that after the stagflation of the 70s, we we had low inflation because uh, most central banks started to go towards an inflation targeting and being independent. I think the reason why inflation remained uh, low had less to do with the inflation targeting, but with the fact that we had a whole series of positive uh, aggregate supply shocks, uh, globalization and hyper-globalization, and China, Russia, emerging markets, India joining uh, the production of global goods and services and the global labor supply. Uh, we had massive migration from south to north, from poor to rich. We had massive technological innovation. We had weaker labor and unions keeping a lead on wage growth. So you had uh, a geopolitical stability that created more trade in goods and services, movement of capital, labor, technology, data, information. Uh, but now all of those uh, positive uh, aggregate supply shocks are being reversed. You have the opposite. You have deglobalization and protectionism. You have reshoring of manufacturing and friendshoring. You have aging of population. You have restriction to migration. You have decoupling between US and China. You have a global climate change stagflationary. You have pandemics stagflationary. You have a geopolitical depressions dividing the world. You have cyber warfare. You have a, a backlash against income and wealth inequality that leads to fiscal policy pro worker and labor. You have weaponization of the dollar that also is going to weaken the dollar, create friction in the 
system of global trade and payment system. These are all forces that are reversing the positive supply shocks that were keeping inflation low and growth stable. These are all stagflationary over time. There'll be even a backlash, in my view, against technology because technology is going to create more inequality and more structural unemployment. Um, and therefore, you know, people say inflation targeting. Inflation targeting is meaningless. And by the way, we live in a world in which on one side you have these stagflationary forces. On the other side, on the demand side, I think what central banks say, we're going to commit to 2% inflation and do anything necessary to achieve it. They're not credible, but not because they're not politically independent. It's because, uh, one, you have fiscal dominance, the concept the economists think about in the game of chicken between a fiscal authority, we lose fiscal policy, and a monetary authority, the monetary has to blink, so otherwise they have a spike of interest rates. And the BOE blinked when there was that fiscal policy by doing backdoor QE. But more than fiscal dominance today is not just the issue of large amounts of public debt and deficit. There is a huge amount of uh, private debt. So the economists at the Bank for International Settlement in Basel, the Central Bank of Central Bank, they call it a debt trap. There's so much private and public debt as a share of GDP, four times more in advanced economies than it was in the 70s. If you try to increase interest rates to fight inflation, not only you cause a recession, and you cause a severe recession, not a short and shallow, but you cause a collapse not just of the stock market. Who cares about the stock market? Most of equity wealth is held by the rich. Because a crash in the bond market with spikes in long-term interest rates, because a crash in credit markets, with spike in the spreads of private debt uh, relative to guilds or treasuries, and that financial crash causes a more severe recession, and a more severe recession causes a bigger financial crash. So you are in a debt trap. So it's not that they're not independent or they're stupid or don't understand. They're in a situation in which they, they'll be forced to essentially blink, they'll be forced to essentially wimp out, because if they don't do it, there is an economic and financial crash. Of course, the moment when they wimp out, you'll have a de-anchoring of inflation expectation, you'll have a wage price spiral, and the rise of inflation then, in the short run, can wipe out the real value of nominal long-duration bonds. And since you cannot cut spending or raise taxes, the way to deal with the debt problem to wipe it out through an inflation tax. But you know, unless you go to hyperinflation, I don't think we're gonna go there. We'll go to high single-digit inflation. I don't think we're gonna even go to double digits. You can wipe out a little bit of the debt, but then as the debt matures, it's gonna be repriced at higher interest rates in nominal terms because of inflation expectation, in real terms because volatile inflation implies high risk premium, and therefore you'll have a higher nominal real rates, and, uh, and then the debt crisis is gonna occur anyhow. Because like, you can kick the can for a couple of years, but uh, you cannot fool all of the people over the time, and once that thing reprises, you still have the debt crisis. So not only we get uh, inflation, not only we get stagflation, we get the stagflationary debt crisis in my scenario. So I, I tend to agree with exactly with your analysis, but I find it interesting that the popular view, I think, is still that we are going to now, like, that the interest rate hiking cycle is going to lead to a deflationary uh, environment and the end of inflation, because um, that, I would say, is the consensus right now. So, Oh, uh, yeah, I don't agree with that consensus, because, first of all, I see still negative 
aggregate supply shocks at work, the lingering effect of COVID, uh, Russia-Ukraine impact on commodity prices, the zero COVID policy of China. But as I pointed out, there are 11 other factors that are slow motion, but all of them are at work that are reducing potential growth and increasing cost of production. So stagflation is going to stay with us even if uh, the war in Ukraine ends, even if China changes its zero COVID policy. So I think those forces being a really medium term uh, stagflationary. And as I said, on the demand side, there is so much debt, central banks are in a debt trap. And by the way, today, debt and deficits are large, but I think they're going to get much worse in the future. Uh, recently, Neil Ferguson, the economic historian, wrote a piece which is said whenever there are wars, we spend more on the military, we have bigger budget deficits, and we eventually we monetize them and get inflation. It's true. Historically, when there are wars, we get deficits and then inflation. And he's worried that, he said, we'll be lucky if we repeat the 70s with stagflation. The risk is we end up like the 40s when there was war. And the title of his article is why World War III is possible, if not likely. However, think of it this way. Today, we're going to start uh, a situation in which because of new cold wars and the risk of hot wars, everybody in the world will have to spend more on the military and security. The Europeans have to spend more, the US has to spend more. It's not against the Russia bear, but more likely what's happening in Asia to try to contain China. So there'll be massive spending on security, cold wars and eventually hot wars. Secondly, we have to spend a fortune to deal one way or another with climate change. So there'll be massive amounts of spending, whether it's for mitigation, whether it's for adaptation, whether it's for anything else. That's a second war against global climate change. Three, we just had a huge pandemic that had a huge fiscal cost. So either we spend a fortune on preventing the next one, or if we don't do it ex post, we'll have to spend a fortune to deal with the mess of it, right? And chances are there'll be other pandemic and severe ones for reasons that I am not going to elaborate right now, but it's only a matter of time we'll have another big pandemic. Four, gradually, but over time, uh, AI, machine learning, robotic automation is going to lead to more structural uh, and permanent technological unemployment. So people are already now starting to say, well, universal basic income or universal provision of services for free, then you have to pay for it. But there'll be also rising inequality because of that technological stuff, and then we'll have to spend more to make sure that those who are unlucky, with jobs and income are gone, are being helped. And finally, we've had such an increase in income and wealth inequality that now there is a backlash against it that leads to populism. If you want to prevent populism, you have to tax people and transfer money to those who are left behind or suffering. So these are all wars, whether it's real wars or cold wars or climate change or pandemic, or the consequence of AI, or the consequence of inequality, they imply there'll be more spending. Now, we're going to raise some taxes, but my guess will be that the amount of increase in spending is going to be significantly higher than how much we're willing and able to raise taxes. And therefore, all these wars imply more spending, more deficit, and then how are you going to finance it? You're going to monetize it. So Neil Ferguson talks about the real wars, hot wars, but there are all the other ones. So structurally, we have all these new mega threats that imply fiscal pressures that lead to more deficit and more inflation.
So very, we're going to end up with higher inflation. There's no other alternative. It's all very full of the Roman Empire, but um, as a classicist, I, I'm reminded of, of the late sort of uh, empire. But the um, plus there'll be the barbarians at the gate because you know once you have climate change, you'll have billions of people who have to move, and they're right. going to knock at our doors, and our doors are going to be locked. By the way, they're already locked now when you have only a few hundred thousand people trying to enter Europe or UK, US, from parts of the world where there's climate change, failed states, economic stability, and you it. Also wait until there are billions of people having to move. But don't forget the reverse migration of all the billionaires going to New Zealand. <laughs> well, they think they're safe there, but unless they have a private militia of some sort, no, uh, no, there'll be but millions of people knocking on their doors, and I don't think they're going to be able to. There is a bit of a reverse migration. There's, I was reading a story just yesterday that a lot of Poles have moved into Spain, and um, it's uh, there. There are interesting um, counter migrations as well. You Americans, I think, are going to South America, vice versa. But, but um, okay, so we've got this huge spending issue, um, yeah. and undoubtedly long-term and These are massive new sources of additional spending. Right. So, and a new one and on top I, of the I existing ones. I agree with you that the So how do we don't end up with higher inflation? Yeah. I just don't understand how you can <laughs> avoid that. And as I said, you know, some people would say, like Paul Singer now says, uh, we'll have hyperinflation. I think that's an exaggeration. But uh, well, averaging 2%, I say, the average is going to be 6 And people say, well, 6 is not so bad. But, you know, if uh, average inflation is six, uh, guilds or 10-year treasury have to be at least eight, six plus two real, given the inflation risk premium. And then mortgage rates have to be double digits and any business loan has to be double digits. And uh, you'll have high nominal and real interest rates. And then uh, how many zombies, household, corporates, businesses, banks, shadow banks, governments, country are going to go bankrupt in a world where you have, uh, we have not seen it in the last 30 years, but 10-year treasury yields going from 15% down to 1% or close to 0 Now it's the reverse. And we'll see how the zombies survive in the world in which you have higher nominal real rates. They're not going to survive. There'll be massive distress. Which I think is a good moment to pivot into the idea of like, where does all this bu bubble, um, you know, easy money has led us into a world of, whether it's in green finance or crypto or innovation and tech, it's, we need the spending obviously to stimulate innovation but at the same time with that spending comes abuse of uh, um, well I, frauds and all sorts of shocking sort of mis misallocation of funds at the same time and if the technologies are not ready yet then understandably some of that is going to be wasted and um, it'll turn into zombie companies as you as you rightly say so how do you avoid that how can you ensure that you can get targeted um, investment that doesn't simply breed more zombies you know unfortunately for the last few decades uh, we've seen this very sharp rise in debt levels as i said private and public as a share of gdp has gone globally from 100% to 350 in advanced economy, 420% of GDP and rising. And that's the explicit debt. If you add the implicit liability coming from pay-as-you-go, pension, and healthcare systems, then another 100% of GDP is equal to the official debt. So there is that other kind of a time bomb. And in part, it was due to uh, you know, politics. Uh, you want to either spend more if you are a center of center left or you don't tax enough 
you're right-wing in power, you cut taxes, you don't cut spending. So there is a bias, partisan bias towards deficits. There are more deficits when there is an election. So there are also political biases. There are also aspects of taxation that lead to a bias towards borrowing and leverage. But uh, the policy of central bank has always been that if the bubble is created on the way up, you don't do anything about it because you're risking to cause an economic crash. And then on the way down, when there is an economic financial crash, you do massive easing. You try to avoid the illiquidity from incoming insolvency. So that also leads to biases. You know, you had the Greenspan put, then you had the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, now the Powell put, over and over again. So we've had the systematically monetary and credit policy that have been sort of building up uh, that. And in Anglo-Saxon countries, because incomes are not growing enough compared to the expectation of spending of the middle class or lower class, we democratize finance, right? Initially with housing and mortgages, now by letting people becoming day traders and mini stocks and crypto and so on, in a way that is crazy, absolutely, because you know, nobody's gonna become rich forever by betting on, it's a zero on sum, stuff. It's a zero-sum and, game. And it is a zero-sum game, uh, uh, everything else. So, so in Anglo-Saxon country, democratizing finance is led to build up of private debt, and then when the private debt goes bust, we socialize it. In continental Europe, instead, we say, okay, uh, we're not going to democratize finance. Savings of the private sector are high, but there is the same social pressure to provide services. So we're going to provide more education, more healthcare, more pension, more social insurance, and we're not going to raise taxes enough to pay for it. That leads to public debt and deficits or what's to private debt and deficits. But either way, you end up with more private debt and more public debt, right? One way or another. And eventually you socialize it in the private sector. So given that one, we are now in a, in a, in a severe debt problem. That's why I worry about the, the model of debt crisis. Now, it's until now we're lucky, until now we were lucky because inflation was low uh -huh. and you had demand shock. And every time there was a crisis, we cut interest rates, we go to zero, negative, quantitative easing, credit easing. We did it after the GFC, we did it after the beginning of COVID. So the beginning of COVID was more of a demand than a supply shock and you had deflation for a few months. And now the part is over because not only uh, you had asset inflation, now you have goods and, and, and service inflation because too much money chasing too few goods and negative supply shocks. And, and therefore, with interest rates rising, you know, the zombies, one, are going bust. Two, on the asset side, we created bubbles, and all those bubbles, I mean, we've raised interest rates, what, from zero to 4% in the US, it's nothing, right? But equity markets down, private equity down, uh, growth, tech, VC, down even more. All these uh, crypto, meme, SPAC bubbles bust. REITs down, bond yields, uh, up and prices down. Credit spreads widening and the price down. So even cash gave you a negative real return because nominal was zero, but you had inflation at 10%. So there was nowhere to hide. So all this bubble have gone bust and you have a triple whammy because you have a shock to the PL, the income of household and corporates. You have a shock to their liability side with debt service inflation now becoming unsustainable. And you have a shock on the asset side, the value of assets, whether equities or real estate stuff is going down. So it's a triple whammy. I, I totally agree with that analysis, but I'm just wondering, like, isn't the problem that we allowed these zombies to like manifest in the first place? And to what degree was that a function of cheap money? And if it was, 
how could you have guarded against it? And presumably, um, the real issue for me is one of a lack of productivity because these zombies wouldn't be zombies if they were productive. And, and frankly, the, the, it seems to me that the more we throw cheap money at the problem, the more we're undermining yeah. productivity. No, I agree. You know, usually when there is a, a crisis, economic and financial, the worry we had was not to repeat the Great Depression, where there were lots of institutions, household, corporate, financial, that were illiquid but solvent. And since we didn't have a land of last resort, we didn't use it, then they all went bust and a financial crash became an economic crash. So that was the lesson, let's not repeat. And I agree that whenever there is an economic and financial shock, there is an element of illiquidity and you don't want illiquid but solvent institution to go bust. And therefore there's room for monetary easing, fiscal easing, credit easing. But that's the early stage. So you want to be Keynesian in the short run to avoid illiquidity from becoming insolvency. But in the system, in the period of the bubble, you created a whole bunch of highly leveraged zombie institutions, creative destruction, supertarian would imply, you have to get rid of them to have new ones and increase productivity growth. And if instead on the way up you allow the bubbles and on the way down you try to bail out everybody, the zombies survive over and over again, the leverage continues and increases and you don't have the creative destruction and then you have also negative impacts on productivity growth. So you want to be Keynesian in the short run, but you want to be sort of Austrian and create the destruction over the medium term. And the problem has been we've been too Keynesian for too long and initially caused acid inflation, now it's causing goods inflation, and we never reached the Schumpeterian stage of creative destruction. Now it's gonna happen now because before the inflation was low and we were bailing out everybody, now that inflation is high to rise interest rates, the zombies are gonna go bust. It's gonna happen, it's happening. But it's happening also because you see the layoffs, like the mass layoffs are happening in, in all the low productivity industries and in the, the ones that were chasing growth but were never profitable um, and their day of reckoning is, is kind of coming now, right? So, um, but isn't that a good thing in the long run? If we see um, people transfer from low productivity, zero-sum uh, sectors into more productive, positive-sum? Oh, yeah, that will be positive. Of course, in that transfer from point A to point B, from a certain firm to another, from a sector to another, from a certain region to another, you need to have uh, one, uh, people able to move. Two, they have to have the right skills because the skills of the industries of the future are different from those. And many people have skills for the old economy. They don't have skills that come from knowledge of STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, computer science. So part of that rising unemployment is becomes uh, uh, more persistent and structural rather than being only frictional. Crypto people, crypto yeah. people being made on unemployment, they, they have in the eyes of like modern skills they've got all of them they know how to code they're you know they're not they're not no, they went they went in the wrong sector because it was the mother of all bubbles so you had actually lots of smart people even with phds that wasted their own brains well 100 percent waste but that so happens whenever good. whenever you're a bubble some of the smartest people go in the sector where there is a bubble so there is that also an efficient allocation of human capital to sectors that are driven by bubble as opposed to those that are really long and productive. That's so what happens whenever uh, there is a bubble, if right? If Sam Bankman-Fried uh, is, you know, 
now looking for a job, he should look to do something a little bit more constructive with his coding skills. Uh, well, he's going to end up in jail. Like, all of them should be ending up in jail, not only him. Tell, so, I mean, we have to talk about it. So tell, I mean, what are you, how, how have you been viewing this whole crypto collapse? I mean, apart from obviously seeing it coming, um, has it unfolded how you expected it would unfold? Or have there been some surprises even for you? Um, you know, I have said since 2017 that this was uh, a total bubble. It's going to go bust. These were not uh, currencies. Calling them cryptocurrencies is a total misnomer. They're not a unit of account. They're not a scalable means of payment. They're not a stable store of value. They're not a single numerator. They're not even assets. You know, assets usually have income. Stocks give you dividends. Uh, bonds give you coupons, loans give you interest, real estate gives you rent, housing give you housing services, commodity give you the services of commodities. So they don't have income, uh, they don't have any using industry, gold is using industry, uh, they don't have any utility, gold is used as jewelry, nobody's wearing uh, Bitcoin uh, jewelry, actually some of them have this tacky Bitcoin jewelry that is, is really distasteful. Um, so. So they don't have income, they don't have use, they don't have liquidity, they don't have anything. So calling them an asset is impossible because for an asset you need a stream either of income or of utility that you discount that gives you a market value. So, and I think this, this whole edifice is now going bust. And most of crypto, by the way, had the same features of a traditional banking system where you have a maturity mismatch. You take people's money and then you lend it out. And you know, the banks are fragile because of this maturity mismatch because you have a risk of a run, even on a sound bank, let alone on one that is actually doing, you know, yield farming, that is just a total Ponzi game. But with traditional banks, because there is a risk of a run, we have deposit insurance, we have lender of last resort, that creates moral hazard, therefore we have liquidity, capital requirement to restrict the moral hazard. So there's a whole system that keeps that maturity means much from creating runs and collapses. You know, Diamond Didigby got the Nobel Prize in Economic this year for their work on, on bank runs together with Ben Bernanke. Studying crypto, you have essentially the same thing like a banking system. And by the way, the exchanges are not two exchanges. They're like broker dealers because they keep the people's assets and they're on their balance sheet on the assets on the liability side. So like broker dealer, there is the maturity mismatch and they're subject to runs. And they're much more shady than legitimate financial institution because financial institution lends money for a mortgage, for a legitimate business, not for lending, for buying cryptocurrencies at 69,000 Bitcoin, then it goes down to 16, and therefore you have a fire sale, your margin call, you know that the fees collapses. So one by one, whether there are exchanges, whether are the lending platforms, whether are anything, they're all going bust. What, um, were you surprised? Totally bust, and they're gonna go bust, all of them. Were you surprised by the sort of elite names that were creditors to the likes of FTX, from Temasek to, you know, Skybridge? You know, the, the VC guys think that they're the smartest people in the world. They're not. They're all talking to each other. They're FOMO. There's a new fad and so on. And then they feel like, oh, oh my God, if somebody else, uh, you know, if Sequoia went into it, I should go into it. And they make tons of mistakes, you know. They took some of the biggest VC. They, they invested, you know, whether it's SoftBank or Sequoia, into WeWork, into lots of other things, into crypto stuff that is shady. And so they think they're geniuses, but they're not geniuses, actually. They're not. So I'm not surprised. And they don't do any due diligence. 
What is um, the stupidest thing you ever heard from the crypto side of, uh, like the, the people who are trying to persuade you you were wrong on uh, on crypto, especially from the kind of like higher levels of uh, you know VCs and, and core finance? Uh, there are many things. One, calling them currency was nonsense. Two, calling them an asset was nonsense. Three, they're totally greedy, but they have this pattern of pretending we want to bank them banked, give identity to the refugees, uh, financial inclusion, helping the poor. You know, Gordon Gekko at least was honest. He said, greed is good and I want to maximize my income. So they, that is a pretense of wanting to do good for the world while instead they were greedy. And by the way, 20,000 ICOs, 80% of them were a scam in the first place. The point the SEC made this parody website to show how you take the same white paper, cut and paste, and change the name and you create something. 17% of them went bust to zero. So effectively, 19,300 out of 20,000 were either a scam or went to zero. And what did they use the money? They bought villas in the Caribbean and around the world. They bought boats. They bought Lamborghinis. They bought airplanes. They went into tax shelters like Puerto Rico, like the Bahamas. There was an article on the FT saying, you know, that there are these uh, nightclubs and strip clubs in uh, Miami full of these crypto guys. One of these strip clubs last year made uh, $6 million of revenue out of the crypto guys. They were throwing million dollar parties, right? They were pay paying for their own massages and things like this. So it was just a total criminal scam. I mean, there are always bubbles when there's new technology, but the extent of criminality, of conmen, of crooks, carnival bankers, really sleaze is unheard of. Were totally you surprised unheard of. Unheard of. I mean, really, and they're total hypocrites pretending they want to change the world with that. They're the greediest uh, bastards ever. And I've never seen in human history this scale of scams. I mean, during the internet bubble, there was a bubble. There were 20 pet.coms. Only three of them maybe survived. But the idea of selling pet food to people online and people love their pets was a totally legitimate business idea, right? Those who didn't have a good business plan, they failed. But it was not a scam. They wanted to sell pet food, right? Well, these are a scam to begin with. They have Wait. absolutely no economic or business basis of any sort. Any sort. Were you surprised by the uh, level of, like, um donations that um, Sam Bankman-Fried was making and this political... But not um, just him, you know, yeah. pretty much uh, they, they they spend a fortune of these ICOs trying to bribe uh, former officials. And they hired the every former regulator, SEC, CFTC, control of the currency, they put them on payroll. You know, in the US you have legalized bribery, K Street is legalized bribery, but they did it to a scale and an extent that was actually unheard of, putting massive pressure on the Congress, there were clueless people don't understand the technology, and telling the bullshit we don't want to hurt uh, innovation in this industry, we should have light touch regulation and all the nonsense. Plus, you had all these offshore financial centers that were doing regulatory arbitrage and so on. So, they, they corrupted the system. That's why, actually, people say we should have better regulation. I think we shouldn't have better regulation. We have no regulation, so let them go bust. Yeah. Let them burn as a, a piece on FT side, right? Because yeah, regulation can sometimes be misunderstood as endorsement. One is endorsement, then it's not done right, and it's captured and corrupted by these insiders, so it becomes lousy regulation that then leads to actually more financial excesses.
I used to be in favor of regulating crypto. Say, don't regulate them. You don't want regulation? Fine. Go bust. Have a massive run. You're all going to go bust. I don't want to give them the patina that they are properly regulated who are not properly regulated. Let them go bust. If you were called in by regulators to testify on the FTX scandal, um, what would you recommend to them? Like, I mean, would you recommend no regulation at this point? I would, I would be in favor of banning all crypto and making sure that the traditional financial system is not exposed to crypto, period. That's the only regulation. You don't want the traditional banks having exposure to crypto and you want those other guys essentially, either you ban them altogether or there's no regulation. In between, it's gonna be lousy regulation. So either you ban across the board this stuff, saying this is just toxic, period, it's dangerous, there's no protection of uh, you know, small investors and so on, it's all dangerous, it's all scams, it's all criminality, or if you're not willing to do that, no regulation, let them all burn. They're all gonna burn. There'll be a massive run on everything. There'll be a dominant effect, they're gonna all go bust. Are you still um, optimistic about blockchain though, or do you think there are... I was, ne I was never optimistic about blockchain. I always uh, had the view that blockchain is the most overhyped technology nice. ever. I mean, conceptually it's flawed. One, because everything that they call blockchain, enterprise blockchain or corporate DLT, is blockchain in name only. It's always private, not public. It's centralized, it's not decentralized. It's permission, it's not permissioned. It's based on a small set of trusted validator. It's not trustless. So it's like uh, having, uh, uh, you know, a spreadsheet or a database that is uh, permissioned, like Google Docs. Google Docs is a permission database, but nobody calls it blockchain. So it's not blockchain, even if it's sexy to call it blockchain, first of all. So 99% of these projects are not blockchain. They're blockchain in name only. Secondly, there's a fundamental flaw of believing that you can create trust with technology. That's false in the beginning, totally false. I'll give you a following example. People say like DeSoto, Latin American economies. The problem in Latin America is that farmers don't have a clear, how to say, property rights over the land. And if you cannot buy and sell the land and so on, you don't create enough of economic efficiency that can be from transferring that stuff. But the problem, take you know, Peru. You have millions of parcels of land. For hundreds of years, somebody was using it to farm something on it. Somebody else was using it to pasture. Somebody might have some other legal rights to have their cows or sheep over it and so on. And you don't know exactly who owns it, who has rental property rights, who has other property rights and so on. So, how you can get, you're not going to put the stuff on a DLT. You have to go and have some trusted individuals who go every piece of land, look at 200 years of history, figure out who has which whatever rights. And after you've done this job for millions of parcels, then you can put it on a centralized database like the US. In the US, you know, I buy and sell my home. You know, there is a centralized uh, registry of all the transactions, all the links and so on. We don't need to put it on a distributed ledger. The hard part is to figure out who owns what. Once you know that, whether it's centralized or decentralized, the centralized is better, because the centralized is an efficiency of hundreds of thousands of computers having to unquote validate. And they're not even validating. Somebody else with the validation figure out who owns what. Or take the you know, supply chains. People say, well, we could figure out whether 
you know, Whole Foods or whatever has uh, organic tomatoes. How do you know? Because you put it on DLT that the tomatoes are organic? No. What happens in the real world is that you send to the farms some inspectors who see whether they're using pesticide, herbicide, GMOs and so on. So they validate. And if they say that's the case, then, you know, Whole Foods buys those tomatoes that are organic. It says they're organic too. Uh, if you're not doing all the inspection, you do also inspection at the retail level. You take samples of this tomato, you test them to see do they have pesticides or not, are they GMO or not. So there is all, again a system that validates this stuff that says, okay, these tomatoes are organic. Saying I can put it on a DLT and then it's organic means, you know, who's going to prove? You yeah. can't just say it's organic and it's on the DLT. Somebody has to do the hard job of figuring that. So the point is, we have institutions that have history, reputation, credibility, that are in the business of figuring out what is true, what's not true, what's valid, what's not valid. And there is no way that technology alone can create trust. We need institutions that are trusted and credible to their job. So the idea that you can use blockchain to resolve the problem of trust is just mission impossible. That's why blockchain is flawed fundamentally. Yes. It's the idea of creating some system that uses technology makes validation trustless. It just cannot happen, period. It's, it's, it's fundamentally flawed. That's why it's just the biggest uh, overhyped technology ever. I, I mean, we strongly agree, and I know you're running out of time, but I do want to just uh, ask you um, about whether you think the... Because obviously with blockchain, it wasn't just the crypto companies, the sort of Wild West. It was mainstream, big, you know, corporate names investing in blockchain. So there must have been millions and millions, billions invested in blockchain-based um, projects and proof of concepts. Do you think that is also going to prove itself? I mean, to what degree actually also has the rising interest rate environment exposed a lot of this being a sort of zero-sum um, well, I mean, tons of financial institutions uh, try to experiment with blockchain and most of them uh, have said in recent past, you know, we tried lots of blockchain, we spent billions of dollars, we even had patents on stuff, but the applications are close to zero. There's a study showing that in the non-profit space there were 43 attempts of banking and banks, provide identity, blah, blah, blah. All this proof of concept out of 43 cases, zero have been successful, you know, the head of blockchain for major consultancies like EY and others say anything you can do with blockchain, you can do it better and cheaper with traditional centralized databases. So there is zero evidence that any of these things is led to anything that can be applied that is useful, just has been a failure. Or is blockchain in name only because it's private, centralized, permissioned, and with trusted authorities. So calling it blockchain is a bit of a joke, right? But you don't think there'll be too much contagion from people realizing that the that the technology wasn't up to scratch? Like there won't be people know. are still talking. Now that crypto is failing, they say, well, crypto is bad, is dangerous, but the underlying technology, DLT and blockchain, is gonna change the world. That's the do nonsense. Yeah. It's also nonsense the same way in which cryptos are nonsense. Honestly, I don't think that uh, blockchain is gonna go anywhere, frankly. I don't believe in it. So to finish off, two quick fire questions. Um, before I ask my um, closer that I ask everyone, I'm just gonna say, going back to what we originally started talking about, do you think that there's a risk we end up going into a sort of war economy type model in the next few years? And if so, what sort of time horizon? 
Well, there are wars and wars. Uh, we're in a Cold War with the strategic rival of the West, and this Cold War could become a hot war. You know, Russia, Ukraine could become a, a conflict that involves NATO, could become unconventional. Uh, Iran is going nuclear, and Israel and U.S. may eventually strike Iran. You know, the head of the U.S. Navy two weeks ago, front page of the FT, said that the chances that uh, China invades uh, Taiwan are high. Not five or ten years from now, I said before 2024. We're at the end of 2022. Before 2024 means 2023 next year, for example. So the cold war getting colder, and. Uh, they're going to lead eventually to some hot wars somewhere. Uh, let's hope it's not a global war and so on, but definitely. Uh, and we're going to spend a fortune fighting these colder, colder or hot wars. But as I pointed out, the, there is spending coming from uh, the fight against uh, climate change, the fight against pandemic, the fight against the side effects of uh, AI, robotic and automation, the fight against uh, rising income and wealth inequality. These are all significant wars that we have to fight to maintain stability, but they're going to be very expensive. They're going to lead us to deficit and debt and inflation. But if we think about it from a war perspective, then is it justifiable so, to um, bring out the sort of financing tools that are normal in uh, war? Uh, no, because you're, you're, you're fighting, first of all, multiple wars, not one, two, three, four, five. And, uh, you know, if, it, if a war is uh, transitory and temporary, you could say, I should finance it with debt. But usually what happens, even if you do that, there's such a build-up of debt that eventually you monetize it and you use inflation to wipe it out. So eventually there is always an inflationary impact of it. And we have multiple wars that lead to multiple forms of additional spending then the excesses of the build-up of deficit and debt are such that then inflation is going to be even higher. And there's no so, one to do lend-lease with, I guess, this time as well, so there isn't that. No, so we're all going to have to borrow, <laughs> so, so, so there'll the be problem. somebody lending with the other, no. So the last question, because it's the Blind Spot podcast, what is, at the moment, today, what do you think is the blind spot that most people are not talking about? For the economy, obviously. Or for uh, global political economy well you know a year ago I mean conventional wisdom has been wrong a year ago they said the city central banks sell side research temporary transitory inflation turned out to be permanent then they said well it's all a bad policy loose monetary fiscal and credit policy uh, excessive uh, demand and overheating wrong there were also negative supply shocks of various sorts and it matters because if you have negative supply shock, it's hard to get a soft landing. Three, then they said, well, it's gonna be a soft landing rather than hard landing. Wrong, we're headed towards a hard landing. Now we're headed towards a hard landing, they say, well, it'll be a recession, it's gonna be short and shallow. Wrong again. And finally, they say, uh, you know, the central banks will be committed to fight inflation at any cost. Wrong again, between the negative supply shocks and the debt trap that have to blink and monetize and wimp out. So I think uh, those are the blind spots. Every conventional system, every conventional wisdom in the last two years have proven wrong. And the two recent ones are the mantra of a short and shallow recession and the, the central bank kind of fighting for every cost. Well, I think thank they're all wrong. 
<laughs> well, thank you um, for putting it so bluntly. I, I have to say I agree with you, and um, but for listeners, I think that's the big takeaway that monetization seems inevitable at this point. Is that fair? Yeah, as I said, the real wars, wars against climate change, against pandemic, against the eye, against inequality, it's all expensive. It's all very expensive and we're going to monetize end up with high inflation. Well, thank you so much for giving us so much clarity today and uh, everybody should go and buy the book. It's uh, Mega Threats and it's available, I guess, everywhere now. So yeah, do, do available get. in bookstores, on Amazon or other online sellers, Audible version, Kindle version, so you can read it in any format, virtual or print or it really does. listen to it. It so. is very good at mapping everything out. So thank you, Rick Muriel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska and Nuriel Rubini. Just a note to say there were many other questions I wanted to ask Rubini about, but sadly we did not have the time. Chief amongst them, however, would have been what his new role as Chief Economist of Atlas Capital is all about, given the vehicle is pitching everything from abstract concepts like beyond returns to indices backed by digital assets, ETFs, and even its own digital complementary currency. Hopefully, we can come back to that another time. For more on how finance and media intersect with reality in the meantime, check out the-blindspot.com.